All right, church, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy 5. We're going to continue on this morning in our study of the Ten Commandments. And this morning we come to the Fourth Commandment. And we are about to pray. We're going to ask God for help this morning, for help from His Holy Spirit to help us to understand His Word. And to help us to obey his word. And so let's do that now. Let's call out for help. Let's pray. Lord, we come today to worship you. And Lord Jesus, there is none like you, Lord. You alone sit at the right hand of God. You alone have been given the name that is above every name. And we bow before you this day. Lord Jesus, and we worship you. There is salvation in no one else, Lord. And we are your church, your very body, and we come to honor you, to praise you. And Lord, you tell us that if we love you, we will keep your commandments. And God, we ask for that heart to be recreated within us this morning that disposition to obey you as Lord, to follow you as King. And so God, we pray that you would address us this morning with your word. Help us to be those who tremble at your word. With great reverence to your word. You are the God who speaks. And we ask today, Lord, that you would bear witness to your holy word in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to begin our time reading God's Word together this morning. And we remind you guys of this fairly frequently that the reading of the Word of God is the most important thing that you will hear in the next hour. Why? Because these words alone are God-breathed words from heaven, without error, profitable for the people of God. And so let's read the Word of God this morning with reverence. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. The Word of the Lord. Observe the Sabbath day. To keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, or your son, or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and, and female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath 
day. Now this is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. I want to spend a minute to to help us to grasp the theme, the biblical theme that the Sabbath fits in from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to appeal this morning to a common experience in this world. And I want to appeal to that universal weariness that each of us have felt, some of us even this week. It's common across the globe. It's common across human generations in myriads of ways. And maybe even this week, we are reminded that life in this world is harder than it should be. It's harder than it should be. There's a toil to life in this fallen creation. And that's a truth that's been common to image bearers of God since the Garden of Eden. Whether it's a battle with sin or a sickness that you are suffering through or hundreds of other unfulfilled desires or difficulties that you face, we are reminded by experience that we live in a fallen world. Life is not as it should be. It's harder than it should be. The Bible teaches in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, that the world that we live in is under a curse. It has been subjected to futility because of the sin of Adam. And this is, the, this is part of the suffering that all of us have to endure. We have to endure toil and hardship in this fallen world. As a result of Adam's sin, God gave Adam toil and thorns and thistles. Romans 8 says this world was subjected to futility because of the sin of Adam. And at times, the battles that we're facing and the disappointments that we experience, they can grind on us to such a degree that we experience weariness in this world. Disappointment in this world. A weariness that saps the vigor out of life and can leave us crying out alongside the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, everything is vanity. In other words, something about our life feels incomplete. Why? Because the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. Every one of us know that there's something more than this world, something more than this life, and we yearn for it. We long for that something more. And one of the narcotics that we use to numb ourselves to that longing for something more, that sense of toil and weariness, is the drug of busyness. Just busy, busy, busy myself, and I don't have to feel that sense of longing anymore. And that's double true in the, the fast pace of our modern world. We use busyness to distract our souls from that sense of there has to be something more than this. 
St. Augustine famously diagnosed this human condition with these words. He says this, Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That's who we are. That's who we are as image bearers of God in this fallen world. And so what I want us to understand at the beginning of our study this morning is the thing that our restless world really needs is rest. Every one of us, we were made for rest. We need rest. And by that, I mean deep rest. Okay? The kind of rest that you can't get by a good night's sleep. The Bible calls this rest for your soul. We need rest for our souls. Rest from that sense of toil and weariness. The Bible even connects this rest to salvation itself. Listen to Isaiah 30 verse 15. He says, in returning and rest you shall be saved. Receiving rest is receiving salvation from God. A restoration for what we were made for. What God intended for the human race. In the early chapters of Genesis we find that God himself rested on the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day of creation. Sanctified it. Made it holy after he finished his work. And the blessing that was placed upon this seventh day, it was intended to be a gift for mankind. God wanted man to enter his rest. Man was to enter into God's rest and listen, and live there. Enter into the rest of God and stay there, remain there. The early chapters of Genesis, Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, describe the seventh day as being without evening and morning. It's a repeated pattern in the seven days of creation, but the seventh day is presented to us as an eternal, never-ending Sabbath. That is what we were made for, to live in a never-ending Sabbath in the very presence of God, entering into God's rest and staying there. That's what God made us for. The rest is the end for which we were made. But as the story unfolds, we find out, Genesis chapter 3, that Adam failed to enter that rest. We're going to find out this morning that Hebrews 4 it presents a long list of Old Testament saints who failed to enter that rest, failed to provide that rest for the people of God. Adam failed to enter God's rest. Instead, because of his sin, he was banished from the presence of God and he received toil, thorns, and thistles because of his sin. But those early chapters of Genesis also tell us that even after Adam was banished from the Garden of Eden, Adam's godly line the line of Seth, began to long for a restoration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden, a restoration of that promise of rest, a restoration of entering into God's rest. And specifically, in Genesis chapter 5, 
we find out that the godly line was longing for a promised singular human being who would arrive to give rest to the people of God from their toil. The one whom they expected to deliver them, Genesis chapter 5, they named him Noah. Because in Hebrew, the word, the name Noah means rest. That They suppose this is the promised one. Finally, this is the one who's going to give us rest from our toil. But this supposed deliverer, just like Adam before him, he fell short of bringing us rest from the curse. And in the post-flood world, generations came, generations went, but this sense of weariness and toil and thorns and thistles, it remained. But the Bible also says, so did the hope of this promise of rest remain. The hope of this rest being restored, made secure, made available for the people of God. And this is what the fourth commandment is all about. You're saying, man, I thought we were about to talk about the Sabbath this morning. The Sabbath has everything to do with this. The Sabbath is a reinstatement of God's intention for man to enter into God's rest. Yes, it comes to us in the form of a commandment, but it functions as a type in the Bible of a promise, a, a truer reality. And we're going to study that together this morning. As we do that, I hope to explain that the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy is different from the other nine commandments that God gave Israel at Sinai. In the sense that it's the only commandment that points beyond itself to the one who would come and finally bring rest to the people of God. Rest from the curse. Rest from our toil. And so that's where we're headed this morning. But before we get there, let's unpack and understand what God required of Israel in the fourth commandment. What did God say? What did the fourth commandment entail? Number one, you see this in verse 12. God tells Israel what to do. Okay, so we'll do several of these. Verse 12, he says, observe the Sabbath day. That's what you're supposed to do, observe it. In other words, Israel was to keep the Sabbath day, that's the seventh day, that's Saturday of every week, they were to observe that as a holy day. They were to sanctify it, set it apart from all the other days, all the ordinary days, days one through six. The seventh day was to be a holy day. So that's what they were supposed to do. Observe the Sabbath. How were they supposed to observe the Sabbath? Look at verse 14. The commandment clarifies this. He says, on it you shall not do any work. And so if you're an Israelite and you say, okay, I'm going to keep the Sabbath holy. How do I do that, Lord? God says, on it don't do any work. Now the fourth commandment goes into this in great detail. 
God means everybody. You might have got a sense of that. You, your children, your servants, your donkey, your livestock, even the sojourner within your gates. God says everybody is to cease from work and to observe the seventh day as a holy day unto Yahweh, your king. Everybody. This required ceasing from work is built into the term Sabbath. The Hebrew noun Sabbath comes, shares the same root as the, the Hebrew verb Shabbat, which means to cease, to stop. So what is the Sabbath? It is a ceasing day, a stopping day, a, a, a rest from your labor, a ceasing from work. No such thing as keeping a Sabbath without ceasing from your labor. So that's what they were supposed to do. That's how they were supposed to do it. But then God also tells them to what end. Okay, we're to observe the Sabbath day. And we are to do that by ceasing from our work. And God's commandments don't always do this because... You know, all we need to know of, uh, uh, you know, of why we should obey God is God said it. But this commandment actually gives us the end that's in view in this commandment. In verse 14, he says that, 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 that they may rest as well as you. So the purpose of the ceasing was to receive rest. Everybody ceases and everybody enters into rest. And what's in view here is a physical rest that would provide an opportunity for spiritual rest. Rest for the body, rest for the soul. And one of the things we find in reading the Mosaic Covenant is God is serious. I mean serious about this required rest. Listen to a few texts here. Exodus 31 verse 15, he says, Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Again, Exodus 35, verse 2 and 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. And so the rest that is required in this commandment is serious business. Okay? Serious business. Now I want to take a, 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 just, just a quick aside that although there's a strictness and a seriousness to this rest... The Sabbath commandment was a good commandment. Like every other commandment that God gave to Israel. It was good. It was even a gift to this nation. It was a blessing to this nation to be given God's holy Sabbath. And so what we find in addition to this day of rest is, is that the Sabbath provided Israel a day of worship as well. In Leviticus 23 Verse 3, it calls the Sabbath a day of holy convocation. 
That on this day there was a a temple assembly and worship rendered to the Lord in His holy temple. Sacrifices were rendered on the Sabbath day and we learn that from Numbers 28. Later in Israel, the whole synagogue system that Jesus participated in in the Gospels, it grew up around this concept of Sabbath worship in the synagogue. Giving praise to Yahweh, hearing the word of the Lord. So the Sabbath was a blessing. Isaiah 58 calls the Sabbath a delight. Not just, you know, uh, do it because I'm supposed to, but I'm delighting in the commandments of God. Psalm 92, the heading in your Bibles, calls it a song for the Sabbath. And it shows us that this day was a day that was supposed to be filled with praise to God, giving glory and honor and worship to the God of Israel. The Sabbath command was good. Christ himself kept the fourth commandment all the days of his life, and he kept it perfectly. It is true that in the Gospels, Jesus confronted oral tradition that had distorted the fourth commandment. But Jesus never disobeyed the Sabbath. Jesus never contradicted Moses and the requirements of the Mosaic covenant. Jesus fulfilled it. He didn't contradict it. Never did Jesus describe the Sabbath as legalistic. And so the goodness of this commandment, it cannot be questioned. It is a good command from a good God. But the strictness of the rest that is required is essential for the Sabbath to function as a sign. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. The strictness of that rest. Everybody rest. God means business. The one who works on the Sabbath, God says, he shall be put to death according to the law of Moses. And so I want us to see the Sabbath as God's gift to Israel. It is a blessing to Israel. Now, me, just in saying that, you know, we have to deal with difficulties all along the way with this topic of Sabbath. And one of the difficulties we have to deal with is that some teach that Sabbath keeping or keeping a Sabbath day is a requirement laid on all of humanity. Not just God's people, but everybody. And not only is it laid upon all humanity, it's been laid upon all humanity from the very beginning of God's creation. That's the Sabbatarian view. That from Genesis chapter 2, God has required human beings to keep one in seven days as a holy day of rest to the Lord. And according to this view, the fourth commandment is still binding today because it's a creation ordinance. It was put in place from the very beginning and even before sin. Additionally, Sabbatarian, a Sabbatarian view would appeal to not only is the Sabbath a creation ordinance, it's also moral law 
Because it's part of the Ten Commandments. Just like the other Ten Commandments are moral law, the Sabbath is moral law. And you can't change moral law. Moral law doesn't change when you go from one covenant to another covenant to another covenant. And so in me saying that the Sabbath was God's gift to Israel, we have some difficulties to work through. Okay? What about the creation ordinance argument? What about the moral law argument? I'll give you four reasons why the Sabbath is likely not a creation ordinance. Number one, Genesis 2 says that God rested on the seventh day after he finished his work of creation, his perfect work. It calls the seventh day a day without evening or morning, portraying the seventh day as an eternal Sabbath. That's what Genesis 2 says, okay? What Genesis 2 does not say is Genesis 2 does not give a command for Adam to keep a Sabbath, nor does it give Adam any suggestion that he is to keep a one-in-seven-day pattern of rest to God? Even broader than that, the entire book of Genesis never shows anyone keeping a Sabbath day. That's argument number one. Argument number two is the first Sabbath observance that appears in the Bible occurs in Exodus 16, where God teaches Israel that lesson with the manna and gives them the commandment to gather the double portion on the sixth day so that the seventh day will be a holy Sabbath to the Lord. God was going to provide for them on the seventh day. They didn't have to go out and gather that manna any longer. And so this is the first recorded human observance of keeping a Sabbath. And what that means is that Exodus 16 is part of the Mosaic Covenant. It presents the Sabbath to us as part of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, sometimes you'll hear it argued it can't be part of the Mosaic Covenant. That was in Exodus 20. This is four chapters prior to that in Exodus 16. But that argument is not good because the same logic would exclude Passover in Exodus 14 from being part of the Mosaic Covenant. And so what we have, the biblical data that we have, is the first Sabbath that was ever kept is on the very outskirts of Sinai in Exodus 16. Number three, Nehemiah 9 confirms that view that the Sabbath was given as a part of the Mosaic Covenant. In verses 13 and 14, we read this, You came down from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by your servant Moses. And so Nehemiah asserts that the Sabbath was given to Israel through God's servant Moses. Number four, 
the Sabbath stood as head and summary of a whole system of Sabbaths. Okay? You might have noticed that reading the Old Testament. It's not just one Sabbath. It's a lot of Sabbaths. Okay? Clearest place to see this is in Leviticus 23. So Israel was to keep one in seven days on a weekly you know, cycle as a Sabbath. We also find that the seventh month in Israel was the concentrated month for the annual feast in Israel. They were called Sabbaths. They were to keep those annual Sabbaths. We find out that every seventh, seventh year in Israel is a Sabbath year to be kept holy to the Lord. And then we find that there is a super Sabbath, a seven times seven years, every 49 years. The following year is to be kept as a super Sabbath, the year of Jubilee, as a celebration to the Lord. Now, the Mosaic Covenant refers to all of those things as Sabbaths. Sabbath keeping to God. And that's obviously unique to Israel. And let me give you one reason why the Sabbath command is likely not moral law, therefore unchanging, therefore exactly like the other nine commandments. In Romans 1... Paul appeals to moral law, and he describes it as a law that is innate, carved in human consciences. In other words, he indicts unbelievers, pagans that don't have a Bible as though they know what's required and they sin anyway. They, they know what's required through the things that have been made. If the Sabbath was moral law, then this means that the Sabbath command would be written on the conscience of unbelievers. Even if they never read a Bible the day, a day in their life. And it is true that unbelievers, by means of their conscience, they know commands such as, Thou shalt not commit murder. They know that's wrong without ever reading the commandment. That's true. That's Paul's argument. In Romans 1, but it is not true in regards to keeping the seventh day as a required day of rest. That is not carved upon the human conscience. It is not known innately by natural revelation. Therefore, it is not moral law. It was revealed to Israel. The Sabbath is God's gift to Israel. And most clearly, you see that specificity, that uniqueness, in the commandment itself. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Those who are charged to keep the fourth commandment and observe the Sabbath day as a day holy to Yahweh, according to verse 15, were those who were to remember that they were once slaves in the land of Egypt. But now they're liberated servants of Yahweh. Verse 15 says, Therefore, on the basis of that, keep the Sabbath day holy. On the basis of their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, 
God gives as the reason for keeping the seventh day holy. And so one of the things that the Sabbath functioned as is a weekly memorial to Israel's liberation from Egypt. Remember, God did that. God brought you out. You're not slaves anymore. You're free servants of Yahweh. Now that is unique to Israel. Egypt wasn't supposed to remember that God brought them out of Egypt. That was unique to Israel. God's blessing to his people. And so these factors, they ought to show us that the fourth commandment has some important differences from the other nine commandments. Okay, uh, And there's some ways to talk about this polemically that are really unhelpful. Like, well, what you really believe in is nine commandments. Okay, No, what everybody believes is this commandment is a little different. Okay, It's a little different than the other nine. A really good example that everybody believes that is this commandment is treated differently. Different views of the fourth commandment are, are acceptable within the body of Christ in a way that would not be acceptable of another commandment of the ten. I mean, we can share fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who have different views of the Sabbath and an understanding that, you know, uh, we keep this, we don't keep this, but can we do that with the command, you shall not murder? No. Can we do that with the command of you shall have no other gods before me? No. We all know that this one's different. Even the fact that there's some toleration in different views shows us that. Let me give you four reasons why the fourth commandment is different from the other nine. Number one, this commandment alone is part of ceremonial law, not true of any of the other nine commandments. There is ceremonial law attached to the Sabbath. Everybody agrees to this. Okay? Not true of the other nine commandments. Number two, this command is not repeated as binding on the New Testament church. Not true with the other nine commandments. Number three. Number four, actually. Number three is that there's differing views tolerated. Number four, most importantly sets this apart as unique in the table of ten, is that this is the only commandment in the Ten Commandments that is referred to in God's Word as a sign. It is a sign. Listen to Exodus 31, 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed again none of the other nine commandments are ever said to be signs for this reason saint augustine referred to the fourth command as the only one of the ten that christians should understand in a figurative sense rather than a literal sense because of the sign nature of the fourth commandment 
And that sign nature of the fourth commandment, it helps us to understand why it's in the Ten Commandments. We said this in prior weeks that the ten words function as the summary of the whole Mosaic Covenant. To such a degree that when God says he gave the ten to Israel, he gave the covenant to Israel. Well, if the fourth commandment is the covenant sign, then it makes sense that it would be included among the covenant summary. That you would include the covenant sign among the covenant summary and then deposit those tablets in the ark before the very presence of God. And so there's something unique going on with the fourth commandment. And the fact that it functioned as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, it helps us to understand why the apostles, especially the Apostle Paul, includes the Sabbath among the portions of the law of Moses that have been fulfilled and pass away. Now this is taught explicitly in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2 Verses 16 and 17, Paul says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ Notice a few things here. Notice that the Sabbath in Colossians 2 is mentioned side by side with Jewish dietary law and Jewish feast days. And then it's called a shadow. Those things are shadows, historically referred to as ceremonial law. Now sometimes you'll hear it argued that the Sabbath that Paul is excluding in verse 16 is not the weekly Sabbath. It's the other Sabbaths in Israel. That he wouldn't include the weekly Sabbath. That's the other ones. The problem with that is he already referred to the annual Sabbaths in Israel with the word feast. In fact, he moves down the Jewish calendar in this way. Festivals, new moon, and Sabbath. Don't let anybody hold these Jewish regulations over you in regards to the annual requirements of the covenant, in regards to the monthly requirements of the covenant, and yes, even in regards to the weekly requirements of the covenant. Paul includes the Sabbath along with the feast days as the portion of the law of Moses that has been done away with because it served its purpose. It's not that it wasn't good. It was provisional. It was temporary. It was a shadow that was meant to point to something. It was a sign that was meant to point to something. And then after that something arrives, the substance, the the sign, the shadow, it passes away. It's been fulfilled. And so the Sabbath was a sign, a shadow, It pointed to a true thing, the substance, and Paul says that substance is Jesus. You might have never heard this in your life, that the fourth commandment is about Jesus Christ. 
The Sabbath is about Jesus. That's exactly what he says in Colossians chapter 2. And this sign nature of the fourth commandment, it has to be accounted for as we transition from old covenant to new covenant. And so we should say it like this. Under the new covenant, we keep the substance that the fourth commandment pointed us to, not the shadow of the fourth commandment itself. The substance has arrived. Christ has come. And so the fourth commandment points us to Jesus Christ as our true Sabbath rest. And it is only as we are identified with Jesus who names himself the Lord of the Sabbath can we be ever said to keep the true intent of the fourth commandment. So what did Jesus do? Well, he came and did what all the others who came before him failed to do. What did Jesus do? He finished his work. He didn't fail like Adam. He didn't fall short of bringing the people to rest like like Noah, like Moses, like Joshua. He finished the work. In fact, that's the very last thing he tells us before he enters into that state of death is it is finished as the Lamb of God hangs upon the cross. Jesus, unlike all who came before Him, finished His work. Just like God did in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus finished that work. Perfect work. Can't add anything to it. It's very, very, very good. And it's finished. And then what does He do next? He finished His work. And then he entered God's rest. He fulfilled what God held forth to mankind from the very beginning. Jesus finished the work as the second Adam. And then he entered God's rest. How did he do it? After finishing the work of redemption... It was by means of resurrection that Jesus Christ entered into his rest. That glorified, exalted state. It was the resurrection of Christ that brought Christ to that glorified, eternal state of rest. Jesus has entered his rest. He's seated at the right hand of God. Christ alone can give us the rest that we need. Why? Because Christ alone has entered God's rest. Listen to what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Remember this, this comes from the Lord of the Sabbath. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now think about that universal condition that we talked about at the very beginning. That sense of toil and grind and things aren't like they should be and there's something more in this world. Jesus says, I will give you rest. And the very next verse he goes on to say, rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. That's what Christ Jesus offers us 
is peace and rest in the sense of the, in, as we pilgrim through this cursed world of toil. Jesus says, I've come. I will give you rest. And so the Sabbath was the sign and the substance of the sign is the rest that Jesus gives his people. Now, in case you think we're making this up, that's exactly what Hebrews 4 teaches. That the, the rest that Jesus gives, the gospel rest, is a rest that we can only enter. Not through day keeping and not through living in the land of Canaan, but listen, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's good news to us. And it even names a day in Hebrews 4. And praise God, he says the day is today if you will hear his voice. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 3 says this, We who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. And very importantly, to fulfill that strict requirement. Remember we talked about that. That strict requirement of the fourth commandment. It's essential in the sign function of the Sabbath. Where God says no work. Okay? What does God mean? He means everybody. And he really means it. If you work on the Sabbath, you'll be put to death. To fulfill that strict rest of the fourth commandment. The Bible teaches that the rest that Jesus gives only comes to those who cease from their works. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. One of the things that you have got to learn, and I mean you have got to learn this, is an immovable requirement to entering into God's rest is that you cease from your works. As we put all the, the biblical data together, you only can enter rest after the work is finished. And only God finishes His work. He does it in creation. He does it in new creation. God finishes the work. God creates the rest. And we only enter the rest as we cease from our works. You've got to learn that. You have got to learn that. The Sabbath was a sign in this sense of that strict requirement of rest. It was a sign of the gospel. Of the gospel. Paul says this in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. He says, To the one who does not work. Now I want you to think about that this morning. Think about how foundational that is for every person in this room that you would learn this to the core of your being. There's two ways that God will deal with you. To the one who works, 
Paul says, God will pay you wages. He will pay you what you are owed to the one who works. That's one way. Every one of us are born in this world relating to God like that. Bring our good works to God. God says, the problem with your good works is all the bad works that you've done too. And if you relate to God on the basis of works, God says, he will pay you what you are owed. That's one way. But Paul says in Romans 4, there's a second way to relate to God, that, that God will deal with you. And he says it this way, but to the one who does not work, to the one who works, and to the one who does not work, listen, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, hallelujah, his faith is counted as righteousness. Are you kidding me? To the one who doesn't work, but believes in Jesus Christ, that one's faith is counted as what? As righteousness, as though he did work and worked perfectly? Friends, that's the gospel. Every kid in this room, you need to learn this. That the gospel is for those who do not work, but believe in the one who justifies the ungodly. Think about how beautiful that phrase is. God justifies, not the godly, you clean your life up and God pronounces you righteous. The freeness of the gospel of grace is what? God justifies the ungodly. The verdict that he renders about us through Jesus Christ is a flat contradiction to who we are. We are sinners. We are ungodly. But when we believe in Jesus Christ, God justifies the ungodly. And all this happens, friends, to the one who does not work. To the one who does not work. And so what we have in the fourth commandment is a sign that preached for centuries. The Jews would gather on the seventh day and they would rest from their works. And the whole time they're they're preaching this sign that's pointing to this reality that the promise is to the one who does not work, but to the one who believes. And so the New Testament tells us that we enter God's rest through faith in God's Son, the one who perfectly finished the work of redemption. And so putting this all together, this means that that rest you were made for is synonymous with you were made for Jesus. You were made for Jesus Christ. All things were were made for Him. All things were made through Him. You were made for rest and you were made for Jesus. And God offers this rest to all when He says in Hebrews 4, God appointed a day when He says today. If you hear, hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Find rest for your souls. And the only place to find it is to turn to Christ. Turn with faith to Jesus Christ. And he promises rest for for your soul. Now one of the things we see in the New Testament is we see warnings. 
about returning back to Jewish ceremonies in the Bible. The Apostle Paul especially. You see this in Galatians 4 and 5. You see it again in Colossians 2. And so there's a danger in seeing the fourth commandment as a sign pointing forward and then living in the forward times and going backward to the signs. There's a danger there. The Old Testament Sabbath was given to God's people in a state of immaturity, but it is unsuitable to God's people in a a new covenant state of maturity. And to return to the shadows after the substance has arrived, Paul says it this way in Galatians 5, is to return to a yoke of slavery. doesn't mean the Sabbath wasn't good. It just means relative to the New Testament era, the Sabbath is slavery compared to the gospel. It served its purpose. You could even say it this way, that Christ fulfilled the Sabbath command so completely that we have no more need for the Jewish Sabbath than we have need for a Jewish temple or Jewish sacrifices. They are shadows that have served their purpose, but the substance is here. For the first several centuries of church history, The church fathers viewed those who kept the Sabbath, they were seen as Judaizing, going back to Judaism. And so we have in the fourth commandment, we have it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the way that we keep it is we keep the substance that the commandment pointed us to. Faith in Christ, resting from our works. Now that doesn't mean that the Sabbath, day, the Sabbath day is fulfilled and we can do whatever we want. Okay? Doesn't mean that. God has not left the church without a day of worship. We have a day of worship. Okay? Important for the church is that Jesus, when he entered into that eternal state, that eternal Sabbath, that state of rest, when he sat down at the right hand of God, An important detail for the church was that that happened on the first day of the week. Not the seventh day of the week, but that this act of new creation and entering into rest, it happened on the first day of the week. In fact, the last recording of a disciple of Jesus keeping the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, is in Luke 23, the night before the resurrection. Verse 56 says this, On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Jesus is in the tomb. They're keeping the fourth commandment. The very next morning, everything changed. By means of resurrection, the Lord of the Sabbath reset the calendar. He brought forth an act of new creation. And here's what B.B. Warfield says, about this transition. He says, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on resurrection morning. Beautiful picture. John refers to the first day of the week, Sunday, as the Lord's day in Revelation 1, showing that there, this description shows us that there is a day in the and the new covenant era that is specially identified with Jesus Christ 
John calls it the Lord's Day, Revelation 1, verse 10. Important to note is that the Lord, kairos, is a term applied specifically to Jesus Christ cover to cover in your New Testament. So what John is describing is there is a day that is associated specifically with the Lord Jesus. Just same construction, Lord's Supper. There is a meal and a feast that is associated with Jesus the Lord. There is a day that is associated with Jesus the Lord. So we have a day. We also have commands. So it's not, man, Sabbath is fulfilled do what I want, you know. You can still say Jesus is Lord and live like travel soccer is king. You can still do that, and it's still sin against God. It's not Sabbath breaking, it's breaking other commandments. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. We have commands to meet together and to not neglect the meeting together of the church. So we have a day, we have commands, and we also have examples of these meetings happening not on the seventh day, the Jewish Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, the day of Jesus' resurrection. And this has been the pattern of the church ever since. In fact, let me read you this quote from... An early church leader, Ignatius, he says this. This is as early as 140 A.D. He says, we no longer observe the Sabbath, but we direct our lives according to the Lord's day on which our life also rose through him. And so we have a day, we have commands we have examples. We have additional testimony from church history that the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, that's when the Christian church gathers. And so we have some important differences as we think about as disciples of Jesus, what do we do with this fourth commandment? But in spite of those important differences, there is similarities. There's similarities here. As the Jews kept a memorial to the finished work of God in creation, Christians keep a memorial to the finished work of Christ, new creation. That's a similarity. As the Jews kept a memorial to the exodus from Egypt, Christians keep a memorial to the true exodus, the exodus that Jesus accomplished, redemption from sin. That's a similarity. But the dissimilarity is the Jews observe this on the seventh day of the week as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, and the Christian church worships Christ on the first day of the week according to the New Testament pattern. And so what we have in the fourth commandment is we have a sign pointing to Jesus Christ. And not only is he the true and better Noah, Jesus is the true and better Sabbath who gives rest to the people of God. Now, when we say that Jesus gives us rest, there is a now and not yet aspect to this. Okay? We enter into his rest when we believe the gospel. In this sense, we enter it now. It's inaugurated rest. 
Yet our rest is not final and complete. It's not consummated yet. There's still a heavenly city that we are meant to inhabit forever. And so the writer of Hebrews says there's a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. And brothers and sisters, what this means for us, two things. It means we're still travelers. We're still on the journey to the heavenly city. We're still longing for our homeland. Rest from our toil, our toil. But what it also means is on the way there, we, there's a sense that we have rest now. That on the way there, we're travelers heading to the heavenly city, but we have a foretaste of the coming banquet. Right now, we have a foretaste. Right now, we have a down payment on our heavenly inheritance. And, and it's, praise God, it's true. That for the Christian, we get Christ now and we get Christ forever and an eternal Sabbath in the presence of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you and we pray, God, that you would deal with us, Lord. Deal with our weary souls this morning. God, we pray that you would summon us again to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would stand by your word even this day, your promise to give rest to our souls, and that you would show that that promise is still good and powerful and true, and that you would fill our souls with rest even this day, even in the midst of myriads of difficulties. Lord, give rest to your people. God, I pray that you would cancel anything spoken this morning that's untrue and unhelpful. God, we want to know your word. We want to tremble at your word. Lord Jesus, help us to honor you. In your name we pray. Amen.